If you'll take your Bible with me today and if you'll join me at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. We're going to read uh, four verses here, but we're going to be looking at the entire chapter. Uh, these four verses that we're going to be reading will be on the screens for you to read along with me, but you will need your Bible in front of you uh, to be able to see the other passages, the, other, the rest of this passage that I want you to see in our our message today. And if you're just joining us for the first time, this is a series of messages we've been in called Dear Paul. Uh, the Corinthians had written a letter to Paul asking him questions, asking him for divine instructions, instructions that were inspired, that came from God. And Paul writes back this letter. And in this letter, he's talking about and answering those questions and what God would have them to do in these different circumstances and in these different uh, settings. And we're going to read beginning in verse 19 down to verse 22 as we get started today. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who were without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who were without law. And to the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we continue in this series of messages from this letter from the Apostle Paul that gives instruction to all believers of all ages, that guides us, a first century letter still guiding us in the, first, in the 21st century, I pray, Lord God, that you will speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you will use me as an instrument in your hand through which you can speak today. But more importantly, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. Help us to understand what's being said in this text and to how this applies specifically to our lives today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you were reading through the book of 1 Corinthians and you were trying to understand what it says, you would quickly find out that chapters 8... 9 and 10 function together as a single unit. In other words, there is a common theme that runs between these three chapters. Actually, in the original text of the Bible, there wouldn't have been chapter numbers. There wouldn't have been verse numbers. And it might have been easier to recognize that common theme and to be able to see that this is a section that goes together. It is a section that deals with Christian liberty, with the rights of believers. In other words, things that God doesn't say we can do or we should do or things that we can't do, we shouldn't do, things that he doesn't specifically address. And he says, you have liberty to make a decision whether you want to do those things or not. You have a right to do those things or not. And he's talking about those kinds of liberties and those kinds of rights, not where he's specifically given us his word and said, do this or don't do that, but where he has not spoken in his word about something. And he says, you have a right to do that if you wish. You have the liberty to choose that if you wish. But then he gives a limitation to that. In chapter 8, the limitation is that in the exercise of your rights and your liberties, you should do nothing that harms another believer. In chapter 8, he says you should be careful about the exercise of your rights and the exercise of your liberties so that your rights and your liberties do not cause some younger, less stable, more immature believer to be tripped up and to fall away. And in the process, you have harmed them. 
And it's important for us to remember that while we may have rights and liberties to do things that the Scripture doesn't specifically say we can or can't do, we have to remember that as a part of the family of God, we have a responsibility to each other. And a part of that responsibility is helping each other to grow in the faith and doing as little as possible, nothing if possible, to cause somebody else to stumble in his or her faith. Now, that same idea of Christian liberties and Christian rights comes right over in the chapter 9. And Paul uses himself as an example. And he's going to be talking now not about harming some younger believer, some less mature believer, some less stable believer. And he's going to be talking about hindering the gospel. You don't want to exercise your liberties and exercise your rights if in doing so, in some fashion, you cause a hindrance to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you noticed it when we were reading through those four verses a few moments ago, but there was one word that was repeated five times in those four verses. Did you see what that word was? It's the word when. He says it once in verse 19. He says it twice in verse 20. He says it again in verse 21 and in verse 22. And each of those times, Paul is telling us something. It is the heart of this chapter. If you want to know what was Paul's heart, what he wanted to be the heart of all of the Corinthian believers, what he wants to be the heart of every believer in Jesus Christ, he wants you to know that I want you to win. I am committed to winning others to Jesus Christ. I am committed to winning others to Jesus I want to win the Jews. I want to win the Gentiles. I want to win the weak. I want to win anyone that I come in contact with. I want to win them to Christ. I hope you see the significance of what he's telling you. In other words, he's reminding us that people don't just by happenstance become believers in Jesus. People don't just, uh, they don't just float into becoming a follower of Christ. That, that you and I, like Paul, have a responsibility to go where the people are and to win them to Jesus Christ. You can't win if you're sitting in the stands. you got to get on the field. Uh, fish don't just jump into your boat when you're on the lake. You have to fish for those fish. Uh, you don't win a race just by watching and cheering on the runners. you got to become a runner. If you're going to win, you got to get in the contest. And Paul says, I'm in this contest, and this contest is for the souls of men and women, and I want to win them. I want to win the Jews. I want to win the Gentiles. I want to win the weak. I want you to see that's my heart. That's the heart for all of you Corinthian believers. That's the heart for all believers of all time, that we could win others to Jesus Christ. You do realize that it takes the effort on the, half, on the behalf of the church and on the behalf of the believers in Jesus that are a part of a church, it takes the effort of every one of us to bring others to faith in Jesus. We have to recognize that we have to go into enemy territory where Satan holds captives, people's eternal souls, intending to damn them to hell forever. And we have to go into the enemy territory and we have to win that person from that enemy. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Now, once you understand that that is the thrust of what he wants you to see, my heart is to win people. Your hearts are to be to win people. 21st century church, your purpose is to win people to Jesus Christ. That is your purpose. Then you'll begin to understand what he says earlier in this chapter because what he's going to tell you as we're going to go back and see is that Paul laid aside his privileges. He laid aside his rights. He set aside his liberties so that nothing would impede the progress of him winning people to Jesus. So go back to the first of the chapter with me for just a moment and see if you don't see this with me today. It begins in verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. So let's stop there for a moment. There are people who are questioning the apostleship of Paul. 
They're, they're suggesting that he's not acting in a very becoming way for somebody who's an apostle. And the reason is because when Paul would go to a city and he would begin to preach the gospel and share the faith of Christ with others, he didn't take money from the people in that city. He supported himself. He was, if you will, bivocational. He supported himself by working as a tent maker. And there were some who said he came to Corinth. He says he's an apostle. He came to Corinth, but he didn't live like the other speakers who come through. He went and he got a job. He worked as a tent maker, and he made a living as a tent maker. We don't think that's very becoming for the apostle Paul. And they began to question, is he really an apostle? I mean, if he doesn't live like one, is he really an apostle? Is he really like one of these traveling teachers, one of these traveling preachers? Why isn't he taking money from us? He goes on, verse 5, or excuse me, verse 4. He says, do we not have, do we have no right to eat and to drink? In other words, he had the right to be compensated. We have the right when we're with you to expect you to provide what we eat in what we drink, verse 5, do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles, the brothers, brothers of the Lord and Cephas? I mean, we have a right to expect you to provide our daily needs. We have a right to have a believing wife like other of the apostles had, a, a believing wife. We have a right to that, though we have limited the use of that right. Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working. In other words, you get the idea of what he's saying? We came to you preaching the gospel of Jesus, working a job as a tent maker so that there would be no charge, there'd be no misunderstanding the motivation of what we're doing. We wanted you to know that we are here with a pure motivation solely to win you to Christ. We had a right to expect you to feed us care for us. We had a right to expect remuneration, a salary that would come from, from us, from you for us. We had a right if we wished to have a believing wife, but we didn't exercise those rights. We set those rights aside. If you want to know whether you have a right to these kind of things, he goes on verse 7, whoever goes to war at his own expense. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. He talks about a soldier. A soldier gets paid when he serves in the military. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? I mean, whatever you plant on your farm or in your garden, you're going to eat from it. You're not just going to give it to somebody else. Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do you get what he's saying? We have a right to these things. We have the privilege of enjoying these things. We have a right to take these to ourselves. Verse 8, do I say these things as a mere man? I mean, is this just me talking, or does not the law say the same thing? The law of Moses say the same thing? Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it all together for our sakes? In other words, he takes them back from that experience of you should be able to, or I, should, I could expect from you that you take care of my daily needs. I could expect from you that I get remuneration. I could have come bringing a believing wife with me if I were married. I could have done that, but he's divested himself of those rights. Why would a man do that? The law says that if an oxen is treading out the, the field, that he has the right, the oxen has the right to eat from where he's treading. You get the picture that he draws for us? In the middle of verse 10, for our sakes, he says, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. So it's only right, those that are planting and those that are, uh, th those that are plowing and, and those that are harvesting, they all have a right to partake in what is being harvested. He's simply telling you that he had a right to these things. He had a privilege that he could have exercised. He could have said, I'm here amongst you Corinthians, but I want you to understand that you have a responsibility and an obligation to take care of me. But he said, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. He doesn't do that because there's something more important to him than exercising his right. He goes on, verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Do you get it? 
If we came telling you about Christ and grounding you in the things of Christ and teaching you the way of Christ, then don't we have a right to receive material things in return to sustain us? Verse 12, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Now listen to his words. Nevertheless, even though we have a right to all of those things, nevertheless, we have not used this right. But endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. You hear what he's saying? Paul says, I have a right. I have a privilege. I have a responsibility. I could say to you, you will take care of me while I am amongst you. But he came saying, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to exercise that right. Because more important to me is that I not do anything that would hinder the advancing of the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. Do you follow what he's saying? Paul is a man who is committed to winning others to Christ. He wants to win the Jews. He wants to win the Gentiles. He wants to win the weak. He wants to win all the men and women that he comes in contact with. He wants to win them to Christ. But what would it have been like if he had come to Corinth, maybe for some, if he had gotten there and he'd preached Christ and he'd won some of them to Jesus, and he began discipling them and helping them to begin to grow in their faith, and he got the church planted and got the church moving in a positive direction, and then he said, oh, by the way, guys, I want to remind you that you're supposed to be paying me. There would have been those who would have heard that, and they would have wondered, you know, is Paul only here for what he gets out of it, or did Paul come with genuine motivation solely for the sake of bringing the gospel to me? And Paul says, I don't want anyone to question my motivation. I don't want anyone to wonder why I came to Corinth. And so I had all these rights, and I had all these opportunities, and I had all of these responsibilities from which I should have been receiving from you, but I didn't exercise any of those rights because I didn't want to do anything that would keep me from winning them you to Jesus Christ. Verse 13, he goes on in this same vein. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? He goes all the way back to the priesthood. The priests were allowed to receive portions of the offerings that were brought to the temple, to the tabernacle, to be offered to God. That was how they sustained their lives. He said, wasn't that the way God fed the priest of the Old Testament? Verse 14, he says, even so the Lord has commanded. Now listen, even so the Lord has commanded, commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now, some of you think this would be a good place for me to stop and to preach for a little while, right? The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Like an ox treading out the grain should be allowed to eat while they're going through the pasture field, while they're going through uh, the grain and be able to partake of what is there in front of them. Those who Preach the gospel should be able to live from the gospel. But listen to him again, verse 15. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, he says, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. In other words, he's drawing a, a, a parallel here. Some people are volunteers. Some people are conscripted. They are drafted. Paul is saying, I'm, I was drafted into the ministry of the gospel. I don't have a choice. If you don't take care of me, if you don't pay me, if there isn't remuneration coming to me, I don't have a choice. I'm going to make sure that the gospel goes forward because that is my calling. That is my commission. Now, I don't want you to take my boasting away by paying me. He goes on, verse 17, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship he says, what is my reward then? What is my reward? If it's not receiving uh, 
support from the people to whom I'm ministering, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. That I may not abuse my authority. To abuse means to make full use of, that I don't use, make full use of my authority, my right in the gospel. These are my rights. I have a right to be fed daily by you that I'm ministering to. I have a right to receive remuneration from those of you that I'm preaching to. I have a right, if I wish to have a believing wife, to have a believing wife that goes along with me in this life. I have a right to all of these things. The Old Testament law says I have a right to them. The sacrificial system and how the priests were fed says I have a right to them. But he said, I set those things aside. I don't exercise my right. I don't make full use of my authority in the gospel. And why is that true? Paul says, for though I'm free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might, here's the reason, win the more. In verse 20, I might win Jews. At the end of verse 20, I might win those who were under the law. At the end of verse 21, that I might win those who were without law. In verse 22, that I might win the weak. In other words, I may have privileges. I may have rights. I may have authority. I, I may have expectations that should be met from you in the Corinthian church, but I want you to know something. I didn't come to you exercising those rights. And the reason I didn't is because I did not want to hinder the gospel. Because more important than the remuneration and more important than my daily needs being provided for by you Corinthian believers, more important than me having a believing wife that would go with me through this life, more important than all of those things is that I win you and others like you to Jesus Christ. And that nobody could call into question my motivation as to what I'm doing. Do you see what Paul's saying in chapter 9? Do you get the gist of, of what is his heartbeat? You know, it's a good place to ask the question, is that our heartbeat? Are we willing to lay aside our rights and our privileges? Are we willing to lay aside the things that we are permitted to do if it causes a younger believer, a less stable believer, an, unbeliever, uh, uh, an immature believer to be harmed in the process? Are we willing to lay aside our rights and our authority and our expectations when it comes to what we have the privilege of being able to do, God allows us to do, if it hinders the gospel reaching somebody? Are we willing to lay aside our rights? In other words, are people's souls really that important? Is the eternal destiny of people really that important? Does it really matter that much if somebody dies and goes to hell? And Paul says, it matters to me to the degree that I would limit my rights and my privileges and my opportunities and even my expectations, I will limit those things. I will not exercise those things or use those things because I don't want them to be a means of hindering the gospel of Christ. Because I'm here for one purpose. I'm here to win the Jews. I'm here to win the Gentiles. I'm here to win the weak. I'm here to win any man, woman, boy, or girl among whom I live my life. God's called me to this. If I don't want to do it. I still have to do it. This is my mandate. It's a necessity that's laid on me. This is my responsibility. And I want to see people come to faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, he goes on a little later, verse down in verse 23. You notice again, he says it very similar in verse 12. He says it again in verse 15 and again in verse 18. He says, verse 23, now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you, do you not know, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. 
self-controlled, not exercising all of their privileges and rights, is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but, but we for an imperishable crown. Now, listen to him. He's limiting the use of his rights, his privileges. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. I know my purpose. I know why I'm here. I know where the finish line is. I know what it is to win. Thus I fight. He changes the metaphor to boxing. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I know who I'm fighting. I'm not just beating the air. I want my punches to land. He says, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. It means disqualified from receiving the reward. So you see the significance, you see the centrality, you see the motivation, you see the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul. People's eternal souls mattered so much to him that he was willing to lay aside his privileges and his rights and the expectations that he could have had. I'm willing to lay those aside. I could have come. I could have lived amongst you. You could have fed me. You could have given me things to drink. I could have expected you to pay me to make sure that I didn't have to work as a tent maker. I could have brought a wife with me if God had brought to me a, a believing wife. I had all of these rights. But I want you to know I didn't exercise those things because I cared more about your soul. And I wanted no one to miss the message that I'm delivering. Now, the question comes is this. How do we win people to Christ? What do we have to do today to reach the world with the gospel of Christ? And the answer comes back in six ways in these verses that are before us. Five of them I'm going to talk to you momentarily about. One of them I'm going to spend my time on. And you'll see these on the screen. First of all, we have to be winsome. We have to be winsome. We're going to talk more about that in just a few minutes. So just write that one down and just remember it and plan to come back to it with me. Number two, we have to live circumspectly. Circumspectly is defined as consideration for all that is pertinent, pertinent all that is important. In other words, Paul sought to live his life in a way that adorned the gospel of Jesus Christ well. He didn't want to do anything that would unnecessarily offend those he was trying to reach. So when he was with the Jews, he was conscious of the Jewish traditions and the Jewish laws. When he was with the Gentiles, he was conscious of the culture of the Gentiles. Though he didn't adopt anything sinful or wayward or outside of what God commanded, he was conscious of the culture of the Gentiles and did as little as possible, nothing if possible, to offend them. When he was with the weak, he became like the weak so that he could lift them up and he could lead them to Christ. He could win them to faith. He was living circumspectly. He was recognizing what was most important and he was adorning the gospel of God well. Do we adorn the gospel of God well? You know what happens when we don't? It's at the end of verse 12. He says, we hinder the gospel of Christ. The word hinder is an interesting little Greek word. It refers to what you would do if you were being pursued by an enemy, by an army. You would go to a road and you would create these ruts, these big ditches across the road to make it as difficult as possible for the enemy to be able to pursue you down that road. I was watching a year and a half or so ago when the war in Ukraine began. Russia began the invasion. And I was interested to note that there were those places where the Ukrainians had blown up the bridges. You could see people trying to escape and they were having to make their way along these pieces of the bridge that used to exist. And the reason they blew up the bridge was for what? To hinder the advancement of the Russian army. The Apostle Paul comes and says, we live circumspectly so that we don't hinder the advancement of the gospel. It matters how you live. Number, number three, we have to look for open doors. We have to look for open doors. 
There are moments in life that are more conducive than others to presenting the gospel. And what did the Apostle Paul do? He said in verse 19, I've made myself a servant to all. I lived amongst you. I was paying attention to you. I was looking for the opportunities that were around you. I'm looking for the opening to be able to present to you the good news of Jesus Christ. He was looking for open doors by making himself a servant. You know what I'm talking about? Moments when there's a death in the family or when there's a wedding or when somebody moves or when a child goes off to college at a distant city or they're going through a significant illness or they come out of the hospital or any number of other things like that. I'm there to serve you because I'm looking for the open door. I'm looking for the opportunity to be able to do what? What was Paul wanting to do? Win them to Christ. Number four, we have to talk about Jesus. We have to talk about Jesus. What we're doing is all about Jesus. In verse 23, he talks about for the gospel's sake. In verse 18, he says he preaches the gospel. The gospel is the good news about what person? It's the good news about the person of Jesus Christ. You understand that a church's primary ministry is not feeding the hungry. A church's primary ministry is not clothing the naked. A church's primary ministry is not providing housing for the homeless. That, those things are a means to the end, but they are never the end in themselves, or the church becomes nothing more than a social agency in the community. But what is the means? What is the end of the means? The means to the end is to present the gospel, to win people to Jesus. People who come to our food and clothing pantry, we are privileged and honored to be able to help them during a, a crisis moment in life when they need some assistance. But they don't come just get groceries and walk away. They come and hear about Jesus. Number five, we have to stay at the task. We have to stay at the task. Paul never lost sight of his purpose or his calling. He didn't run the race with uncertainty. He didn't waste time beating the air. You have to know where the finish line is. You have to know where the fight is. And then you have to go and finish the race and fight the fight. And you don't give up and you don't quit until the last person is won to Christ. The task isn't done. I notice some words here. Verse 19, look at them again. At the end of verse 19, that I might win. Notice the words, the more. I want to win more and more and more and more. But you'll notice down in verse 22, the last phrase, by all means save some. He knows he can't win everybody, but I'm going to win everybody I can win. We have to stay at the task. And number six, we have to cooperate with others. This isn't just our task alone. This is the task of every member of our church. This is the task of every New Testament church that seeks to be a New Testament church is to win others to Christ. You notice again in verse 23, he says that I may be a partaker of it with you. I do this for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker. The word means to go into fellowship and into communion in the gospel with you. In other words, I want to partner with you. I want to fellowship with you in the gospel and the task of taking the good news to the end of the world. So that brings me back to the one where I want to spend the last part of my time. We have to be winsome. This is where you have to begin because this is what Paul is doing. What is Paul doing when he goes to a place and there are Jews in that city? He's being winsome. When he goes to the places where there are Gentiles in the Gentile culture, what is he doing? He's being winsome. He's recognizing the cultural differences. He's recognizing that you have to go about evangelizing them differently. He never changes his message. The message is always Jesus. But he recognizes that he has to be winsome if he's going to gain a hearing. Winsome is defined as charming or winning or engaging. It means that you're attractive and charming in an open and delightful way. You know what I'm talking about. There's some people that you just feel comfortable walking right up to and speaking with, and there's others you wouldn't walk across the street if you were made to walk across the street and speak to them. 
They're not winsome. You understand that Paul had to win these people to himself first in order to win them to Christ later? And we must do the same? It's not uncommon that people have to believe in us before they believe in our Christ. People usually have to like us before they'll listen to us talk about the Savior. They generally want to know who we are before they want to know in whom we believe. Another way to say it, are you getting the idea? Another way to say it, if we're not friendly, people won't believe Jesus is a friend of sinners. I read about a pastor that took his oldest child to a pizza hut one day. There was just one booth left, and so they sat down in that booth, and the ladies in the booth next to them were rather loud, and they were criticizing their pastor in their church. So this pastor turned around to them and asked them where they went to church. And immediately, he says, their tone changed, and they started sounding super spiritual. He said, it was almost as if they swallowed a steeple and took a tray full of communion crackers. Then he told the ladies, I couldn't help overhearing you talk badly about your pastor in church. I just wanted to know where your church was located so I'd be sure never to go there. That was a rebuke, by the way, and a needed rebuke. That's not very winsome, is it? We wonder why we don't win our children, why we don't win our neighbors, we don't win the people at the restaurants. We don't win people in our business. We don't win people in our own families. We don't have a winsomeness about us. You realize that probably for most of you, the issue here today is not that you ought to quit smoking, but for some of you, it's that you stop arguing politics on Twitter and you, st you quit arguing theology on Facebook, and you quit being a Pharisee around your lost family, and you stop being so opinionated about everything and everybody at work and school. We have to be winsome. I'm not being very winsome at this moment, am I? <laughs> you have to be winsome. You have to be winsome. Are you approachable? Are you friendly? Are you kind? Do you smile? Do you look like there's joy in your heart? Do people feel comfortable approaching you? When's the last time you invited somebody not to church, you invited them to your house? When's the last time you invited somebody not to church, you invited them to a restaurant for a meal? When's the last time you invited somebody not to come to the church service, but you invited them to come into your life because you want to win them to Jesus? You want to be able to tell them a story that can change their eternal destiny forever. And to do that, you have to be winsome. For some of us, that's harder than others. For me, that's more difficult than it is for my wife. But all of us have to work at it and ask God to help us, to make us as winsome as possible. A man I used, I used to know, he's in heaven now, he would go to people's homes and he would visit on behalf of his church. And on one occasion during a political season, he was at a house when something was said by the homeowner that represented an opposing political viewpoint of the man that was visiting Instead of ignoring the comment and staying focused on the gospel, he chose to respond to the comment, and an argument ensued. Say, so how do you know that, Pastor? Because the man called me, that's why. <laughs> and the end result, the gospel was hindered from reaching the homeowner. We're about to enter a political season. We all have strong opinions about who we want to lead our country and what things we want to see happen in our nation. But I want to remind you that more important than saving this nation are, is the salvation of people's eternal souls. Thank God for those who work in the political arena. But we as a church have to remember what our purpose is. We are here to be a light in the midst of the darkness we are here to be a winsome people, not a compromising people, a winsome people, a friendly, kind, understanding, kind.
kind of people that are inviting others to come into our lives and come into our homes and come into our church to sit amongst us. I write in a journal. I've been doing this for a number of years. It's an electronic journal. <clears throat> it's 2018. I read this this past, this past week at the end of the week in my journal. Every, every day it brings up things that I'd written in previous years. Sometimes that's good because there are things to rejoice over, and sometimes that's bad because there's things to say, oh my, that was a low point in my life. But this past week, it came up in my journal about a visit that I made to a church. Mary and I were traveling back from a distant city, and we couldn't make it all in one day, so we broke it up into a two-day trip, and we stopped in this particular city, and there was a church there that I heard a lot about over the years, a preacher that I heard a lot about over the years, and it's Sunday afternoon, and I realized when I'm in the hotel room, checked in, that I could get to that church service. You'd think my wife would go with me, but she stayed at the hotel room. <laughs> it was only a couple of miles from where the hotel was, and I got ready, and I got in my car, and I went to the church. It was a part of the service. And I wrote down in my journal when I got back to the hotel room these comments. Listen. By the way, there are things that go before this, but it says this. The biggest thing I felt besides the good things, I talked about the music. I talked about the message, which was on prayer. I talked about the praying that was done in the church. I talked about uh, the, the facilities were magnificent. The biggest thing I felt besides the good things I've already expressed is that not many people spoke to me. Only when we were asked to introduce ourselves to those sitting around us did someone finally engage me in finding out more about me. It felt really awkward being in a place where you don't know anyone and struggling to feel welcomed. Once I met a couple of people during the meet and greet time, they proved to be more than kind. It was the awkwardness of the 25 minutes or so that I sat in my section with others not noticing me as a guest that stood out to me. Anyway, I'm sure this is due to it being a Sunday night rather than a typical Sunday morning service. I think it's probably true that most churches place the greatest emphasis on making guests feel welcomed on Sunday morning. That is the time when most visitors come to a church. My visit tonight probably wasn't something that is all that common in a church this size. And I finished by saying I was blessed by being there and I'm more than thankful that I went. I wonder how many today will walk away saying, I sat there for 10 minutes. I sat there for 20 minutes. I sat there for 30 minutes. I sat there through the whole service. Nobody even spoke to me. The people that were sitting in my section, I sat down amongst them. I don't know their names. They certainly don't know my name. And nobody even introduced themselves to me. N nobody even said, are you new here? Is this your first time? And you're going to hear some that say, well, no, I've been coming for months. And you're going to have to respond, you'll have to forgive me. This two-service, this two-morning service schedule is so confusing. You've got people that come to one service and don't come to the second service. I didn't mean to offend you, but I want you to know I'm here for you. <laughs> Did people walk right past your little click coming in? And you didn't stop talking to the people that you can talk to anytime on any Sunday and turn around and shake their hand and welcome them? Did you get here at the last minute to see as few people? And will you leave as quickly as you can to talk to as few people? Or will we be winsome? Do you realize that we have dozens, hear the, hear the number, dozens and dozens of guests every Sunday. You recognize that's not the normal for a church. We have dozens and dozens of guests every Sunday. Some of you are a guest today and you're listening to me to preach to my church, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying. It's awkward to sit in a place and nobody even talk to you. Nobody even shake your hand. Nobody even say the bathrooms are in the back. Are we being winsome? I mean, just consider not going to find people that you can win, just winning the people 
that it found us. Are we being winsome? Are you friendly? Do you know, do you have to be spoken to before you speak to someone? Have you introduced yourself to to, to those you don't know? Have you offered to serve or to help someone that's sitting around you? If they need to find something at the church, did you ask them their name and then call them again by their name? Have you tried to be hospitable toward those that come to our church, members and guests alike? Hospitality is a lost and dying art in America and in the church as a whole, especially toward people we don't know or know well. But hear me, if we're going to win people to Christ, we have to be winsome. We have to be friendly. We have to be kind. We have to be considerate. We have to be a person who sets aside his liberties. Well, Pastor, I just come to church to be able to sit in the quietness of the moment, not have anybody bother me, not have anybody say anything to me, and just watch what's going on on that big screen behind you as the clouds go by over my head. Just watch the things that are going on. I just want to still myself in your presence. And Paul said, yeah, I've got a right to all of those kind of things too. I have an expectation that those things should be done. And I I could expect you to give remuneration to me. But I set all of those things aside. I didn't take a dime from you. You didn't give me my food on a daily basis. I didn't bring a wife like some of the other apostles have wives. I chose not to be married. I chose not to be married. And I did all of those things because I didn't want to do something that would hinder in some way the gospel, keep me from being able to go from city to city to city and be able to tell others about Jesus and be able to do what? Win them. Win them. Win them. They're not going to just jump in the boat. You got to go fish for them. You're not going to win them sitting in the stands. You got to get on the field. You got to get busy and win them to Christ. Listen to me, church. This is the one area of our ministry that hasn't come back. from the 2020 plague and it's got to come back now we've got to be more concerned with winning people to Christ than we are with our own personal little preferences and our own personal little world and our own personal little expectations and our own personal little rights and privileges we've got to be more concerned with winning people to Jesus Christ. Are you with me? I hope you are. Have you ever heard of Penn and Teller? You say, what are you doing, Pastor? I'm looking for my note. There it is. <laughs> you ever heard of Penn and Teller? They're a magic act that takes place out in uh, Las Vegas. Several years ago, a man walked up to Penn Gillette and um, he gave him a, Gideon, a Gideon's New Testament. He's recalling this incident in the video. I watched the video again this past week. I've seen it several times before, but I watched it again this past week. And Penn Gillette uh, says, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist, but he was not defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice. You hear the winsomeness? He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes. He'll say that three times through here. And talked to me and then gave me this Bible. Gillette goes on to talk about he doesn't respect people who call themselves believers who don't evangelize. He calls it proselytize. He doesn't respect people who don't proselytize. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you don't proselytize, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, 
and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize, he says. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them? These are his actual words. If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is, in, and this is more important than that. Again, he reiterated his impression of this man's demeanor. He says this guy, for the third time, was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a Bible. He'd written his name in a little note inside. He said, I liked your show. He listed five phone numbers for him and an email address if I ever wanted to get in touch and talk. Winsome. Winsome. Folks, we're here to win people to Jesus. So look at me and I finish. Do you know Christ is your Savior? You're lost in your sins. You will be separated from God forever. You will spend eternity paying a penalty that you don't have to pay. Jesus wants to give you something that's a gift. It's a free gift. It's the gift of eternal life. It's a gift that has to be received, and it's received simply by believing in Jesus Christ for it. And You've been coming week after week, week after week, and you don't know that you know that heaven is your home. And maybe we haven't been as winsome sometimes as we ought to be. And sometimes we got distracted from the central message of what we're here to talk about, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm here to tell you that this is a church that cares about your eternal destiny. This is a church that wants you to be saved. Why wouldn't you want the free gift of eternal life if you could have it? Why wouldn't you want that gift?